Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. I'm sure. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, sounds perfectly. We'll fine. we'll get right into it. So uh, we we did an episode uh, quite a few months ago on insulin resistance, uh, scratching the surface, as they say. Uh, and today we're going to take a deeper dive into insulin resistance. Not you know a, a technical deep dive that is completely uninteresting to people, but expanding upon the initial conversation a little I think bit. Technical That's, details are interesting. Well, you do. Yeah, uh, thanks. But uh, the rest of the audience <laughs> may not. So uh, why don't we start with uh, with your current definition of insulin resistance and just explain what it is uh, in the least nerdy fashion you can. <laughs> well, that, that's, thanks for the impossible task. I'm thinking about um, the listener here. Yeah, I mean, so insulin resistance, I guess it's reasonable to start with the why is this important and why are we discussing it again? Um, but a physician or a researcher you should think about. And when it comes to insulin resistance, that probably is actually true because it affects a huge amount of people in the population. And it is the beginning of a disease process that leads to not only diabetes, but heart disease and cancers and so on. So basically all, all of the things that are you know the top three uh, things that kill people, insulin resistance is, is right there in the early stages, moving the needle on those things. Gotcha. So that's why it's important. What is it? I mean, the name sort of speaks for itself. So insulin, the hormone, uh, has receptors on cells in your body and over time for various reasons, which we can get into, um, those receptors become less sensitive to that insulin signal and which makes insulin not able to do its job properly, uh, which means that it builds up in your system. So your levels of insulin go up and that's a problem because of what insulin or what the effects of insulin actually are on your body's tissues. Okay, so let's uh, let's bring it down a little bit into practical terms. So why does a person not want to be insulin resistant as far as the most obvious effects of, of suffering from that? Would you consider it a disease? It, I, I would say, well, I, some would argue, I think, that insulin resistance itself is a disease. The problem is that there's not a clear definition that we can run a test and say you have insulin resistance because of you met this threshold. So it doesn't really fit that criteria. Uh, and there's not like a, a syndrome of effects where, you know, to contrast like fatty liver, for example, you know, there's there's a definition of fatty liver. 
but for insulin resistance, it's not quite the case. And the applicability to anyone walking into their family doctor's office for testing is not quite there. Right. I don't want to get too off track here, but what is, where is the line between like a disease and a condition? <laughs> how do like, how does something become a disease and not just like a, uh, a, a condition of lifestyle? I don't know what the alternative definition would be, but when does something go from just a thing that happens to people to being classified as a disease? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a good, clear scientific distinction between the two. I think a disease is probably something that's later stage that's actually by either putting organ systems at risk or has already caused damage to organ systems. And it's therefore something that you kind of have to live with or require specific treatment to cure it. Whereas a condition is, to me, just kind of suggests more so you've got some symptoms of something uh, that suggests an underlying potential disease, uh, but not necessarily so. Do you think anything, uh, do you think being able to treat it with a drug has anything to do with the classification? Maybe. I would think that, uh, well, you at least- I mean, not know, necessarily. You, he yeah. you hear about uh, pharmaceutical companies creating conditions in order to, uh, to, yep. to sell drugs, right? right? Which is the reason why I asked. So we'll, we'll take a step back again. Uh, so what is it that somebody, uh, what is it that insulin resistant is insulin resistance is going to do to a person that's going to make it a very unappealing, uh, process? Yeah. So that kind of comes down to what, what's the job of insulin in your body? So insulin is the hormone that's released from your pancreas. And the, the most commonly known stimulus for insulin release is blood sugar levels. And that can come from you know, different states, but most likely you've eaten something, your blood sugar levels have gone up. And when your body senses that in the hypothalamus of your brain, it sends a signal to say, okay, we need to dump some insulin into the system to bring those sugar levels back down. And the most common way that we do that is by telling muscle cells to soak up that glucose from your bloodstream. So that's that's the major job of, of insulin. At the same time, it's also telling your liver to stop producing new glucose because in, in an unfed state or a starvation state, we still maintain our blood sugar levels in a very tight range. And the way that we're able to do that is because our liver is really great at actually making glucose out of other molecules. That's called gluconeogenesis. So it does that. So insulin, when it's on the scene, says, okay, well, I've got what we call exogenous glucose source, so coming from the outside. So I don't need the liver to be making more sugar right now. So it turns that off. The other thing it does is it tells your cells to basically store energy so and it, and it does so in in the form of fatty acids so lipogenesis so creating fat that we can store in either our fat cells or you know further down the disease state around our organs so that's the visceral fat that's really nasty that we don't want so it kind of it you know it has other effects as well but it's essentially a storage building type hormone signal in the setting of increased energy in the form of glucose in your bloodstream. Yeah. So that's a very, uh, 
internal medical view of the issue. Simplify it as far as what a, the consequence of what that does to a person as far as how they look, how they feel, those sorts of things. Sure. So the, re- the reason that's bad is because if you're constantly in a state of high insulin levels, you're going to be constantly telling your cells to store fat, which means you're going to gain weight and you're going to have less accessibility of glucose freely available for energy. So if there's glucose that can't get into the cells, then you can't access that for energy. And you've socked away all this fat into cells, which is less accessible for normal daily energy requirements outside of you know certain exercise examples. So you get more tired. So you gain weight, you get tired, uh, and then eventually, years down the road, if this goes on long enough because of you know factors that lead to insulin resistance in the first place, which obviously we need to cover, um, but you will develop the inability to control those blood sugar levels, which leads to hyperglycemia, diabetes, and the cascade from there. So before we get into specific lifestyle factors that are going to lead someone to be more susceptible to something like insulin resistance, are there any specific predispositions that a person is going to have that's going to make them more susceptible to insulin resistance, regardless of like exercise, diet, those things that we'll get into? For sure. So there's definitely a genetic component. So if you if your parents had type 2 diabetes, then there's a good chance that you have a genetic predisposition to being insulin resistant, even if you're normal weight. Um, ethnicity is also uh, significantly associated. So if you are uh, like South Asian ancestry, for example, then your likelihood of being insulin resistant is two or three times higher than the Caucasian population. Is that, but is that independent of a mismatch of, of culture and genetics? For instance, if someone, uh, you know, if somebody comes from that part of the world over to North America, does it become a problem or is it also like, is uh, it the Western diet and culture? Yes, because you you see this across many populations where uh, at home, the, the, the nation or part of the world that they come from. They don't suffer those problems. It's when they come here that it becomes a specific demographical issue because there's some sort of uh, mismatch between the Western diet and those cultures. I think that used to be true, but so much of the world has become, quote unquote, westernized. Yes. That, I mean, in the developed, in the, let's just say in the developed world, which is all over the world now, um, then these issues are, are there and it's so you're right it is a lot to do with lifestyle and culture so with technology and automation we're far more sedentary in our working life and with industrial food production you know we our diets are far more likely to induce this state than they would have historically yeah and it goes it goes both ways right like there's probably places in the world where uh, historically those groups of people, uh, ancestrally anyways, consume a lot of carbohydrates yeah, uh, and they tolerate them very well. Right. And if you took that group and put them on a super high fat diet, they're probably going to face the same sort of consequences that somebody coming from a place that's maybe more uh, protein and fat centric right. would when they came to a which, place that is. That yeah, is, which makes the whole nutrition thing all, you know, all the more complicated. Yeah, and it probably doesn't yeah. matter where you come from 
we're not really talking about, uh, you know, when we talk about a Western diet, we're not talking about a variety of healthy whole foods with a very specific change in, in macronutrient ratio. We're just talking about a, a processed food, alcohol, laziness, all of these sorts of things in combination, yeah. basically a life of comfort and access to uh, hyper palatable processed foods, which, you know, there's varying, there's certainly uh, varying degrees of, of how one individual may suffer from that more than another, but everybody will suffer from that if that becomes their, their primary lifestyle. And that's right. I, and yep. the evidence of that, I would say, yep. is, is yep. somewhat. So that's the susceptibility piece. And then, you know, for, for anybody listening, if you are in the overweight or obese range, according to BMI already, then, I mean, there's essentially a 100% chance that you have some amount of insulin resistance right now. Yeah. So before we get into uh, lifestyle factors that, that drive this this issue, uh, I want to go back uh, and talk about the genetic component. I know this is a tricky question to answer with any sort of accuracy, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I don't specialize in accuracy. When we, <laughs> when we talk about uh, genetic factors outside of the ones that we just talked about of, you know, the part of the world that you come from and the drastic change in, in a traditional diet to a Western diet. But if someone just has a genetic condition, like you mentioned, uh, you know, if, you, if your parents have type 2 diabetes, then you're much more likely to struggle with this issue. <clears throat> Do you know of any literature that can separate out the actual genetic component of that issue versus the environmental component? So hmm. I'm going to assume that if you're raised by two type 2 diabetics, they probably don't have the best lifestyles. And some of that lifestyle is going to be passed down onto you, especially when you're a kid, because you can't really control what you eat, the activities that you're put into, those so like your your exercise value system, let's, let's say. Uh, do you have any sort of uh, idea or feeling how much of those sorts of genetic contributions have to do with actual genetics versus the environment that someone is likely to grow up in under those conditions. Yeah, I, I so I'm not aware of anything that's able to successfully separate the two. Um, I mean, there's there's it's always a, a yes and type calculation, right? Because yeah. your genetics are what your genetics are. You're not going to be able to change that. Well, yes, anyway. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there are certain diseases where there's like a single mutation. And we're able to figure that out and we can you know, potentially do something about that. But when it comes to these metabolic conditions, you're talking about a multitude of pieces of DNA that may or may not be involved. And so we do like you know, whole genome sequencing to try to figure this stuff out. And, you know, did the, I actually was looking at a paper recently that looked at, well, you know, what's the additional value of running these, like the, like the SNPs, so these single nucleotide polymorphism things. So you basically run a genetic analysis on somebody and you go, okay, well, you've got all these different, you know, single nucleotide changes, which is a component of your DNA. And for so, those listening, we're basically talking about like 23andMe and these other yeah, exactly. uh, genetic testing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's right. And they'll give you like a report that goes, you are so and so, you know, so likely to have X condition or this trait or whatever. And if you look at it in terms of predicting the likelihood of somebody having real metabolic disease, it actually adds almost no value to 
take into consideration when like when I have a patient in front of me, that report is not helpful in translating to diagnosing or treating that patient. Right. At this point, maybe there's, you know, there's some stuff there and there's there's some groups that are, you know, they think it's the sexiest thing ever and they've got people who are willing to open their wallets and pay for it and then they tell them they're doing precision medicine and it's, you know, this really cool thing and, you know, there's probably merit to continuing down that path because that's how scientific discovery works and if there's people who are willing to pay for it and be guinea pigs, great. Uh, but at this point, it's not really that helpful and it really does come down mostly to the lifestyle yeah. factors. Most of those, like it's it's essentially a, a risk assessment, but the changes in risk by increase or decrease are usually quite minor outside of yeah. the genetic conditions that are very straightforward. Sure. There, I mean, there are obviously certain certain conditions which are you know, very life altering in terms of your metabolism. And usually those are picked up very quickly in, when somebody is, is a baby um, and, you know, potentially a little bit later on. But th those are, you know, major issues. But th the vast majority of cases of insulin resistance are due to what you're putting in your body. Yeah. And this is, I think this is what people would, would come to know as epigenetics of, you have these potential increased or decreased risks and predispositions, but the environmental factor has to exist uh, in, a, in a fairly significant way for, for those gene expressions to actually mean something. So yes, you might, you might be more uh, genetically susceptible to type 2 diabetes, but there has to be the element of dietary issues and lack of exercise and all of these other things that that drive that right. genetic problem. Yeah, it's similar to um, you know there's there's the known association uh, of ApoE4, which is a gene mutation that you can get, uh, which may predispose you to developing Alzheimer's disease. You don't want to get Alzheimer's. That's not great. Yeah. Um, so, you, uh, you know, this is something that you can learn about yourself. So when you do your 23andMe, you get that report and it tells you. So, you know, if you've got dementia in the family and you're concerned about it and you feel like you're ready to deal with that information about yourself, it is knowable. But then the question is, if it's positive, what does that mean? And, you know, the, the fact that you have it doesn't actually confer the risk that, that that's actually going to happen, right? So yeah. it's like, okay, well, maybe I have a higher risk than the general population, but that doesn't mean that that's my fate. Right. So yeah. the only reason to know it is really if it's going to add fuel to your fire to live the healthiest lifestyle possible because you can't actually control the expression of that gene or not. Right. Yes, I've, I've you know, as some people can imagine, I've done every single <laughs> gene testing program under the sun uh and i have a single told you you were a, you're a cyborg <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have a a single apoe4 uh variant i'm a 3-4 which i believe uh last i checked puts me at 2.8 x increase of some form of uh neurological disorder that explains why uh, you can remember what we <laughs> talked about the yeah. last time we, we did this yeah. primarily <laughs> alzheimer's uh but I worry about when other people get that kind of information because, you know, a, a 2.8x increase seems very high. 
but what does that from, actually mean? From what to what? Yeah, does that mean yeah. if you have a one in a thousand chance of, of getting, let's say, early onset Alzheimer's, and that increased the risk to now a 2.8 in 1,000 risk of early onset Alzheimer's, is that really a meaningful difference in risk? And I would say no. Right. It is certainly not something to, to, to worry about, but at the same time, uh, anything that frightens somebody into making serious lifestyle changes, I think, is, is a yeah, positive if it, if thing. It, ultimately, if it scares you in the right direction, yeah. <laughs> then sure. Okay, so let's get into the actual lifestyle factors that are going to contribute to something like insulin resistance. Yeah. What are you know? They don't have to be in any sort of priority order, but just emphasize the, uh, the emphasize uh, your estimate of, of contribution to to the problem. Yeah. So when it comes down to what what actually causes the insulin resistance, so as far as we know, the best explanation is excess fat inside your cells, uh, particularly muscle cells, because the muscle, again, is the biggest sink for glucose. And when you have excess fat inside the muscle cell, it impairs the insulin signaling pathway. So... Sugar goes up after a meal, insulin gets secreted, it comes along to your muscle cell, hits the receptor and goes, okay, you need to suck in that glucose, but all of a sudden, because there's too much fat inside that muscle cell in the cytoplasm, it interrupts that signaling pathway, so the channel that would open up and let the glucose in actually doesn't hit the cell surface. So that's, you know, that's why it's happening. Um, hold on. So just to clarify, if you consume high concentrations of processed sugar, it's not going to affect you from uh, from an insulin resistance perspective until there's this issue of of adiposity. Right, but that doesn't that doesn't mean adiposity like visibly. Yeah. Right. So so not being overweight or obese this happens in lean people or it begins in lean people so, so it's just about the ratio within the cell it's really i mean you hate to oversimplify it but it really is an excess energy problem right so when you hit your system with excess energy meaning that you're not burning off from your basal metabolic needs or exercise then your body goes, okay, well, what do I do with this excess energy that you've delivered to me through your diet? And, well, it stores it because that's what humans are really good at doing. It, because of evolution, we lived through periods of, of famine and starvation. So our bodies became really adept at going, okay, you've, got, you've given me this excess stuff. That's awesome. I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to convert it into fatty acids and triglycerides, and I'm going to store that. And it stores it everywhere, not just in fat cells. It stores it inside of the cytoplasm of your muscle cells and every other tissue. So great, you've done that. So, but now you've interrupted that insulin signaling pathway. So the next time you've got excess sugar on board, you can't actually handle that as well. And so your insulin levels basically just keep going up and up and up because they're saying, well, here, you're not getting my signal, so I'm just going to give you more of it. Gotcha. So I want to ask another f further qu uh, clarifying question. So kick aside uh, the possibility that 
increased sugar intake or processed carbohydrate is more likely to to lead to weight gain independent of that possibility you're saying that it doesn't matter how you get fat it doesn't matter what you ate to get fat if you get fat on a ketogenic diet you are likely you are equally as likely to suffer insulin resistance as someone who got fat off of a, a diet high in processed sugar if you've gotten to the point where you have excess fatty acids inside your cells then yes i think you would be equally likely to be insulin resistant but then after that point what you consume will make a difference gotcha okay so it's it's mainly i agree it's not how you got there it's the fact that you just had excess energy in the system for a long period of time consistently okay how much uh how overweight does a person need to be for this to be a problem can you can you you don't actually need to be overweight so we, we can, but you'd be much more likely, correct? For sure, yeah, absolutely. Right, because so, I know you yeah. can you can be lean and the process can still be happening. Yeah, which is probably I would assume likely to lead to weight gain. Yes, uh, if you have the insulin resistance. Right, <clears throat> but um, is there or, is there or a, a difference in in fat distribution? Right, right. So you get like you know the dad bod. Yeah. So you kind of <laughs> like scrawny in the in the chest and arms, but then you got this big belly. Yeah. So even though your BMI might not necessarily be, you know, in the overweight, obese range, it's the distribution of fat is suggestive that there's some significant dysfunction. Gotcha. Do you have a Do you have a sense of at what you know body fat percentage threshold someone is is really becoming at risk? Thinking that like a super lean male is between seven and nine percent, and a super lean female is between like eleven and fifteen percent. Um, a fit male would be, you know, uh, probably, uh, between 12 and 16%, a fit female between maybe 15 and 20%. Um, if you could like, I'm just saying that. So the person who's listening can, can, you know, maybe plot themselves along that graph at what body fat percentage for male and female do you start going, okay, well, this is very likely to be a risk once you get yeah. to this point. That's a good question. I don't actually know the answer. And when you read about this, that doesn't actually come up. Yeah. Um, clearly, you want to have an advantageous ratio of lean body mass to fat mass. Um, I, w I wonder if it's just a product of the fact that, I mean, we don't have great measurements of, of people's body composition I would that are that readily that available to us to make that determination. What but. about hip to waist ratio? Yeah, so hip hip to waist ratio. I mean, it's, it differs for for men and women, but um, above one for men is problematic, and above I think it's point nine for women is is problematic. Can you just quickly tell people how to do that calculation? Yeah, so you you just you measure your your waist circumference, and that's measured kind of at the if you look at yourself in a mirror at the narrowest part of your abdomen, usually an inch or two above your umbilicus. So you would measure that distance at, at the end of exhalation. <laughs> uh, and then you measure your hip circumference, which is at the widest part. And so usually kind of goes around the, the glutes and uh, and then you just compare those numbers. So you divide the, the waist into the hip. And if you, so you know, greater than one means that your waist circumference has 
gotten to the same level as your hip circumference. So obviously you should be a bit wider in the hips than you are in, in the waist. Gotcha. Um, but again, that dad bod sort of reverses that trend. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Continue on. So uh, what is it for, in your perspective, uh, if this is a concern for people, whether they're on the way to insulin resistance or they're clearly already there, and maybe there's two answers to this question based on if you're, if you're, you know, leading yourself into insulin resistance or if you're, you're clearly already suffering from it. Uh, but what, what is the dietary intervention that you think makes the most sense for trying to reverse or halt uh, well, this issue? We should probably step back and, and figure out, you know, how, how do you know that you actually do have it? So if you're concerned that you do, like, how do you find out for sure biochemically? Yeah. Cause that would be an important step. And it, I, well, I guess it's kind of like our previous conversation about the genetics. It's like, well, it, it, knowing the, inf- the the information that you do actually have evidence of insulin resistance should really should just increase your motivation to do something about it. Yeah, perhaps right. uh, perhaps I oversimplify, but I would think if you look in the mirror at yourself and it makes you sad because of how you <laughs> physically look, assuming there's not some you know psychological issue that makes you that makes your mirror essentially a clown mirror, but you just look at yourself and you go, I do not look good. I do not feel good. Yeah, I I'm concerned about my state of health. For sure. I would say nine out of ten times that person's if you know you're into yeah, this category. Yeah, if you know you you know you're overweight, then I mean you probably have insulin resistance. And even if you don't, the intervention dietarily is probably, yeah. the recommendation is probably the same. Yeah. And and apart from maybe feeling better in the relative short term by making some changes, you can really change the course of the next 30 years plus of your life, depending on where you're at now, uh, because your your risk for cardiovascular disease only goes up with age. And so if you're in your 30s or 40s and you're overweight, then you know, you've know you got a long runway ahead of you for opportunities to reduce that lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. And so that really should be the motivation to do this. This is this, It's a long game. You don't have to make you know massive crash diet changes overnight to cure this problem. This is like, no, this is an, an everyday thing that we need to pay attention to kind of forever. Why don't we, why don't we stay there for a second? So if someone is insulin resistant, uh, whether they're, you know, clearly overweight as a result or uh, perhaps on their way to becoming overweight as a result, what other d- disease risk goes up with insulin resistance? So diabetes, first and foremost, uh, but then cardiovascular disease, so your risk of having a heart attack or stroke, and which you know both of which can be significantly disabling. So that's uh, you know major major issue. Fatty liver, uh, which can ultimately lead to Nash cirrhosis, um, which is a you know definitely a road you don't want to go down. Uh, and then cancers. So what about uh, what about neurological disorders? Uh, I, I mean, there's probably an association with just about any chronic disease that you can think of uh, and metabolic disease and insulin resistance specifically. Um, but I mean, so dementia probably would be the neurological disease that would be most associated with it. Yeah, I, I feel like we, we talked about this a little bit last time, but I know that there are, are some physicians in the space 
you know, who refer to insulin resistance as uh, or neurological disorders as type three diabetes with the suggestion that your inability to properly metabolize glucose in the brain uh, leads to this sort of energy deprivation that uh, that leads someone to to suffering some sort of early early onset neurological issue do you have anything you want to say about that no i mean i I think it's probably true in those associations absolutely i mean i i actually just had a patient in clinic on monday uh who i'm treating for you know he well he's no longer diabetic which is amazing but uh you know obesity essentially uh and he's lost 10 kilos of weight now and he's saying the the most significant thing that he's experienced is he no longer has the level of fatigue and brain fog that he felt before he goes he's like i didn't even realize how bad i was until i started to feel relatively normal again and had energy to do things again and could concentrate on doing the tasks that i actually enjoyed doing so i mean there's there there's got to be some sort of neurological element to it okay so let's circle back did we finish talking about uh your own self-assessment of uh insulin resistance um like mine personally for anybody <laughs> what you would recommend to somebody um, yeah so if if you think you've got it and so the question would be well, like how do you get tested for it yeah. um so this is something that needs to be picked up before you're being screened at the standard points for diabetes for example because if you if you're hitting positive for your fasting glucose is elevated you're like way down the road you've missed five ten years of opportunity to do something about it so this is where i mean really you need to measure serum insulin levels and you can measure that as a fasting level in the morning Uh, so this is something that you will need to ask your doctor to test specifically because it's not part of the standard screening protocol but it is i mean in ontario it's a covered it's an insured ohip test do you think most doctors know what to do with that number like a a family physician for instance no i don't okay (laughs) but it will show up as high (laughs) if it's like way outside the range yeah which is good although the average range is based on the average population which is probably a more diseased population than we'd like probably because uh, <laughs> i would think that a doctor would say like if someone said i want to get my fasting uh fasting insulin tested their mm-hmm. family doctor would just go no let, we're just going to do your your blood glucose your yeah. hba1c yeah and that's your, a, that's yeah. an unnecessary test yeah, and your fasting glucose is is normal so there's no problem well there could very well be a problem and the only way that you know that is if you actually check the insulin levels because if you if your insulin's you know, five times higher than it should be to keep your glucose normal, that is a major indication that your metabolism is messed up. And wouldn't that often be the case that if someone is overweight, uh, but they still have normal blood sugar? Yes. Isn't there a good chance that that's because their insulin is 3x what it should be? (laughs) I see it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that then, constant yeah. circulating uh, concentration of insulin has its own specific health ramifications. Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why it's so. That's why it's so difficult 
to lose weight or one of the reasons because you've got all this insulin kicking around. Yeah. So even if you are s- starting the process, you're like, but I've made all these dietary changes and I'm exercising more and I'm not losing weight. But like, yeah, because your insulin is through the roof. Yeah. To remind people, insulin is a storage hormone. So if it's, you know, three to five times what it's supposed to be, I mean, it's not it's not linear. Uh, per se, but you are going to store significantly more energy that you take in as fat than you would if that number was more well controlled. Which is why it's a long game because it takes a while to move the needle on that and reverse the trend. Yeah, there has to be a significant amount of energy deficit for a prolonged period of time, I would think, to to meaningfully bring that number back to where it should be. Which brings us to your question of, so what, what do you do? Yeah. What's the best way of going about it? Um, so I, I would say, you know, first of all, you, you have to reduce the total number of calories. So the, the original problem is excess energy going into the system. So the major part of the solution is reduce the amount of energy going into the system. Would you say that? Would, I, know, I know technically that's true, but if you were, uh, if you were speaking to a patient would the reduction of energy come before a change of the type of foods that somebody was eating? Well, you you achieve the former by the latter. Right. So, <laughs> so if we're talking yeah. about interventions, though, is it more important that somebody eat slightly less processed food? Or would it just be more important to, ch- to reduce the processed food intake and to replace it with more uh, healthy whole yeah. foods. That so, would be. I, so it it depends on where that person is is starting. So you, I you look for the easy wins. So you look for the things that are extremely high calorie with no nutritional value, which is basically anybody who's pouring sugar into their body in the form of beverages. Um, you know that's the easiest thing to go. Okay, well you, you're probably drinking like an excess thousand calories a day. So we need to stop doing that. And just by that single change alone, you can see huge differences. And, you know, a similar argument can then be made for those ultra processed foods, the really refined uh, high glycemic index carbohydrates, because those are the things that are most likely to be absorbed quickly and increase insulin signals quickly. Um, so yes, your insulin will go up in response to protein and fat as well. That's normal, but not nearly to the extent that starchy, sugary, processed food will. Okay. So what is the specific dietary intervention you give to somebody? Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> I wish there was you know, just a, a standard thing. Well, there's got to be I, like the three to five things where it's like, if you're doing this, you got to stop this. Yeah. So there, there's the, you got to stop dr- drinking sugar sweetened drinks. You got to stop eating candy bars and, you know, chips and just all of those, you know, the, the quote unquote junk foods. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised at the <laughs> amount that people eat those things but don't think about it like it doesn't even register so when when i ask a patient what do you eat they'll go through okay well breakfast i have this lunch meal meal like a like a sandwich dinner it's well you know like like meat and some vegetables and like okay like 
So where else is it coming from? Right. So, the, OK, well, what do you snack on? And all of a sudden it's like this torrent of, oh, yeah, well, basically every night before I go to bed, I, I you know, have uh, toast with jam. And then, you know, I, well, I like to have a bowl of pretzels and you know, I so have a just, slushy machine <laughs> in my kitchen and I have a big yeah. gulp <laughs> yeah. before bed every night. And, and I love like my triple triple and all that stuff like it, this. is It's. It's unfortunately really common that we mindlessly consume these things throughout the day just because they're so available and yeah. it becomes habitual. Yeah. Uh, so when people say, like, I, I've had patients come in and they're like, I don't understand. Like, I'm only eating 1,500 calories a day. And you're like, well, that's impossible <laughs> because your weight hasn't changed one bit over yeah. the last six months. And you're not s feeling like you're starving. So, no, you're getting extra calories somewhere. So it's you got to do a bit of forensics <laughs> yeah. on, you know, what's actually going in here. So a good place to start is actually just to, you know, keep track. So for people who are having that sort of mindless uh, approach to it, then so just, just observing what's actually happening, get a diary, you know, actually write down what you're eating every day. I don't want you to calculate calories. I don't care. Um, but because we can, we can usually figure out, you know, based on that list of stuff that's going in, we can peel out the ones that aren't doing you any good and they're only doing you harm. Yeah. This is a place where I think, uh, <laughs> glucose monitors can help people too. Sure. Especially, uh, <clears throat> when you're looking at the evidence as a practitioner, because if at 10 o'clock at night, your blood sugar goes from five to 11, that doesn't happen <laughs> just magically without some yeah. sort of uh, processed a very food exciting show intervention. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would think that would act as a deterrent for someone to not tell the truth either, because that uh, those glucose monitors, the uh, accessibility of the data yeah. and the ability to read it is yeah. actually quite I mean, simple. So I, and I guess it, it's important, like if you, if you really wanted to be serious about fixing this problem, like get help work with somebody and and work with them honestly because if like if you try to build an alliance with somebody and have a good p patient relationship but if you're not forthcoming with what's actually going on i can't really help you and i mean to be honest it's kind of your personal responsibility to take care of your health i'm really just somebody to help guide and you know eventually when the wheels fall off write prescriptions yeah <laughs> but it's I mean, it, there's there's no sense in coming in and I like I I understand people I understand the feeling of of shame and embarrassment and all those things but we kind of got to get past that and go all right well you know this is this is just a problem to solve like any other problem there's yeah. there's an equation there's variables that go into it and we can move those things yeah I think it's the most difficult part of even outside of health helping anybody with any matter is that if a person has a problem something got them there and it was probably a series of actions and choices that that built up over time over many to years. get them there and the timing has to be right and so many stars need to be aligned for this to be the moment that it makes a difference like if someone's quitting smoking um you know if somebody's going to uh, be more financially responsible 
and if someone's going to move towards preventing or reversing a, a lifestyle-driven disease, it's not as simple as just having information, having access to different sorts of interventions. Like there's got to be, there has to be that moment where the timing is right, the concern is high enough, that things just fall into place where this is the moment where the person is actually going to make a difference. Yeah, and unfortunately with, with human beings, it's it often takes a scare for that to to really sink in whether yeah. it's to to you personally or you know someone close to you dies prematurely or has a a really devastating diagnosis then th- those are the kind of the times when people get really serious about stuff yeah and a lot of times even that's fleeting where it's yes, like i'm serious true. i'm serious yeah. for 3 months and then as soon as there's a little bit of comfort yeah. back i go i go into my old ways like that's what i mean even like the incident of someone close to them or them themselves having a serious medical problem that makes them go like oh shit i better figure this out yeah even that's not enough like there's it's hard to ever know what the X factor actually is, but I feel like in most people's lives, it's like 10 different things have to be converging at the exact moment where it's right for that person to, to break that habit, which is, you know, unfortunate, but it is the, the nature of human beings is like, if you've got a problem and you've spent a lot of time digging a hole with that problem, there's a lot of stuff going on inside of you and in your environment that's putting you there. Because if you could just snap your fingers and be different, it would have happened a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you know, I don't want to ramble on about it, but, yeah. you know, it's frustrating as someone who, you know, your job is trying to help other people is that you you can't. You can be... You can be a source of guidance or support or information that aids that person when they are on their way to helping themselves. But like 99% of, of what's going to make a difference is is internal to the person. Absolutely. And I mean, as, as a physician, like you can't wear all of the failures either. Right. Yeah. So there's lots of times we try stuff and it, and it doesn't work or somebody doesn't stick to the plan or, you know, a, a, various things come up in life and and stuff changes and you know, and this is why I've, doctors prescribe drugs I've, it, exactly like, it's, what, the, it's if, the easier thing to do if you can't do the thing that that prevents you from requiring the drug yeah. then uh we might as well make your yeah. lifestyle the best yeah. possible with, got, with a drug another, intervention another person I'm, I'm looking after for chronic kidney disease and you know, I, I see her and her major concern is her husband's got dementia and she's a full-time caregiver. And she's like, honestly, I'm not really focused on, on my health right now and what's going on there. And so, I mean, bring on the blood pressure medications. That's fine. I'll, I'll take those. But I mean, this is my focus right now. And if you're in that situation, the two hours at the end of the day that you can have to yourself, just watching TV and eating and not thinking about your your significant other's problems and the stress of having to deal with that is probably very required relief for that person where yeah. taking that away even though for their health it's the best thing they can do for their current life it might be the worst thing for yeah. that person in that situation yeah so to i guess to to bring, to bring it back <laughs> i mean the name of the game is it is reducing calories and so you look for those those easy wins with the examples that we talked about um, there, you know, if a dietary pattern appeals to you, <clears throat> that's great. Whether it's the Mediterranean diets or the portfolio diet or, um, the dash diet, like there's all sorts of things out there that all have scientific evidence, which is good. Don't fall into the rabbit hole of the evangelist 
diets because it's, I don't know, it's just a really toxic environment. Um, so you need to do that. And then the other part of it is time. And then the other part of that is, okay, well, what about, how does exercise factor into this? And, you know, as, as far as I can tell, the best form of exercise for this specific problem is zone two. So that's the, you know, low level aerobic or moderate intensity aerobic work for an extended period of time. So usually at least 30 minutes per session. And so that's, you know, if you talk about different ways to measure it, you can either use heart rate, uh, but just perceived exertion is probably the, the simplest way for people to gauge what's going on. So the form of exercise would be, you know, brisk walking, uh, biking, uh, rowing's not as, as great, or like walking on a treadmill at an incline or um, a stair stepper can actually be reasonable as well. So as long as you're doing that consistently to the extent where you can still speak, but you wouldn't want to hold a conversation. Yeah, that I makes push, sense. I push people a little harder uh, with zone two because I find sometimes that description just keeps them in like a high zone one. Yeah. Whereas what I tell people is exercise should be as uncomfortable as possible while you could still continue to exercise. Um, yeah. Because I find true zone two, there is an element of discomfort in the exercise yes. as far as breathing heavy, some element of burning to the muscles. There's a, the, You require uh, some psychological motivation to continue going, yeah. but your body will not break down. It's not like you have to stop because you can't breathe anymore because your muscles hurt so bad. Like you can't yeah. even turn your legs on the yeah, bike. Yeah, like you're, you're capable of, of keeping going for an extended period of time. Like you could, you could be at that pace for three, four hours if you wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but for sure, you have to kind of go back and remind yourself. You're like, oh, I actually just dropped my pace back, and I didn't realize it. So you gotta up the up the ante a little bit for. Yeah, I th I think that's reasonable because some people have described it as like the, your all day pace. I think that sort of underplays how much exertion you actually need to have. Yeah, it, it depends on your fitness level too. But I find yeah. zone two is, requires a little more more work than people yeah. typically think it does. And the but the reason that that form of exercise is because it's it's below lactate threshold. So the type of metabolism that you are using is mainly fatty acid oxidation from inside your cells. So if you remember the problem that leads to the insulin signaling breakdown is fat inside the cells. So you want to use up that excess fat energy stored and zone two is the best way to do that. So you increase your mitochondrial efficiency that break down fatty acids and use that to create the energy that you're using. So you try to deplete those energy stores which will then allow your cells to become more insulin sensitive, which is ultimately where you want to get. Gotcha. What about resistance training? Because like circling back to the very <laughs> beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that muscle is the glucose sink as far as how well someone can dispose of excess glucose. Now, of course, the average person is not going to pack on 15 or 20 pounds of muscle no matter what they do. Uh, so, you know, if you if you're if you're adding, you know, four to six pounds of, of muscle onto your frame, that's, you know, that's about the best that most people can do, especially people who are falling into the situation of needing this this uh, this sort of intervention. Um, 
But how much of a difference do you think that makes as far as resistance training, creating uh, more muscle volume and that muscle volume reducing some of that excess glucose burden? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great point. So I think so because muscle is the biggest sink, obviously, you need to have muscle present in order to be able to soak up um, the, the sugar and turn it into glycogen. So, yeah, I think resistance training is is still important. Uh I would say again, it just depends on on where the person is in their fitness journey. Zone two is very accessible, yeah, and you know relatively simple to explain and to do. Yeah, uh, resistance training is more technical, and you often you know require some additional stuff. Of course, you can do lots of body weight things, but you still kind of require a program, and probably if you're new to it, somebody to look at what you're doing so that you're you're you know, technique is, is reasonable. You're not going to hurt yourself and that you're capable with range of motion, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think if, if you're starting out from ground zero and we can just introduce the zone two, I'm perfectly happy with that for now. Cause the other, the other way of looking at it is, you know, although you've been sedentary carrying around an extra 40, 50 pounds on your frame for a long period of time, you probably do have some muscle underneath to be able to do that. Like if I were to throw on a 40 pound weight vest and go for a walk like that would be difficult yeah but people are out there carrying on about their life with that extra weight on them all the time yeah so i think there is muscle mass there and enough muscle cells that are able to soak up excess glucose as long as you can restore the insulin sensitivity that's a good point so diet exercise uh, I know we talked about sleep and stress a little bit last time, but maybe you just want to yeah. summarize the the contribution. Sure. I mean, there's there's a clear association with um, poor sleep consistently increasing insulin resistance. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the other things you, you got to go after and uh, to to restore <laughs> insulin sensitivity. So trying to do everything that you can to consistently get that, you know, ideally seven, eight hours of good quality sleep each night uh, will do wonders for you. Yeah. Uh, and it also becomes easier to sleep well as your weight comes down because, you know, sleep apnea is extremely common uh, as our just discomfort when lying down for an extended period of time based on body size. Yeah. Uh, and then the stress bit, yeah. So when, when you're stressed out, you're releasing what we call counter-regulatory hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, you know, et cetera, that increase sugar in your in your system. So they, they cause your liver to to crank out more sugar and you know, just kind of creates that vicious cycle. So um and it will also increase, you know, the potential for inflammatory changes, et cetera. So, and probably also drives uh, behavioral problems related to food as well. Yeah, some maladaptive uh, behaviors definitely to to compensate for it. So, yes, yep. Yeah, I guess uh, yoga. Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Meditation, sleep, and stress are both yeah. very complicated problems yeah. for people to solve. Because again, like you know. Stress. Therapy dogs. There, that's <laughs> there. that. There it is. There you go. We just figured it out. Yeah, yeah. It, maybe someone could do something with therapy dog yoga, like they do with goat, goat yoga. yoga. Yeah, yeah. Someone so, sent me or didn't send me. Someone posted <laughs> on Instagram the other day them doing goat yoga, and they're like, 
go do goat yoga. You won't regret it. And I said, I bet you will if one of those goats pisses on you while it's sitting on your back. Goats are aggressive. And, like, there must be incidents. Like what? I think they the, indiscriminately the defecate. <laughs> what is the cost of insurance of running goat yoga? <laughs> Anyhow, is there something you want to add in closing here? We should uh, wrap this up. Uh, I don't think so. I think we covered a wonderfully broad range of, of items. Yeah, maybe uh, unhelpfully broad at some points. Which <laughs> I'll, I'll take. I'll take the responsibility for that. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't know how soon if ever we'll revisit this but yeah i, I mean we could said most of yeah. what there is to say on we should probably just do resistance. another an ama at some point and see if people have you know follow-up uh questions that we can specifically address but. or bring on someone who's uh expertise not, like online. a real expert a real expert yeah <laughs> yeah excellent expert with a capital e. <laughs> The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.